Our gospel reading for this second Sunday of Easter comes from John chapter 20. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, just as your Son, our Savior Jesus, was patient with the fears and the doubts of his men, his disciples, so, Father, today be patient with our cares and our worries and our anxieties as we come to you through your word and as we cast those cares upon you, receive them and strengthen us and deliver us from them. We pray that you would comfort our hearts by your word now and by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you believe in the siege of Constantinople in 1203? Do you really think that happened? Have you ever spent a night staring at the ceiling, wondering if there really was a siege of Constantinople in 1203? I mean, how do you know it happened? Were you there? Do you know anybody personally who participated in the Fourth Crusade that sacked the city? Well, then how do you know it's true? Do you just go around believing whatever the history books tell you? Well, I do. I believe it happened because I believe the many credible historians who wrote about it. And that's the same basis we have for believing anything or trusting in anything that we haven't seen or experienced firsthand. We depend upon reliable authorities. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. He wrote this. He said, I have to believe that Jesus was and is God, and it seems plain as a matter of history that he taught his followers that the new life was communicated in this way. In other words, I believe it on his authority. 99% of the things you believe are believed on authority, Lewis continues. The ordinary person believes in the solar system, atoms, and the circulation of the blood on authority because the scientists say so. Every historical statement is believed on authority. 
None of us have seen the Norman conquest or the defeat of the Spanish Armada, but we believe them simply because people who did see them have left writings that tell us about them. End of quote. Because none of us is omniscient, none of us is omnipresent, none of us is omnicompetent, we all rely on information that comes from outside of us. And so it's critical that we rely on truthful sources, which is increasingly difficult when there are competing voices telling you different things. There, there aren't a lot of competing narratives on ancient history. There, there are a few, and we have to work through those narratives asking questions like, why have we understood it this way for so many centuries, but now there's another narrative? Who is pushing this new narrative and why? But those questions seem to be rather easily settled. But for history that is still being written, events and opinions now come at us from every direction, and we are put in a position that requires us to exercise discernment, which requires us to possess a kingly wisdom about who to trust and who not to trust, asking questions like, who are you and why are you saying this? What is your agenda? How reliable have you been with other data? How honest are you? How consistent are you? Most importantly, who are your gods? What idols do you worship? And ultimately, when trying to think clearly, it all comes down to who is the authority that I am going to believe. The question of what to believe and who to believe and why we should believe them is right at the center of our gospel reading today from John 20. Understand, the Bible never discourages critical thinking. The Bible never discourages asking questions. The Psalms are full of questions. How long, O Lord? Why, O Lord? The Bible never discourages you from sorting through the evidence. In Malachi, God says, come see how this works. Be obedient. Give to me. Try me and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and bless you. In Psalm 34, the psalmist says, oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Come try this. Check it out. See if this is not satisfying to your soul. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Isaiah 55 says, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Even if you don't have any money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You see, the invitation repeatedly is to come, try, taste, come eat, see for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Try it. Check it out. John, in his epistle, first epistle, he says, test the spirits. Paul tells the Galatians to think critically about what is being preached to them. And if it doesn't square with the truth of the gospel, let it be anathema. But don't turn off your brain. Think critically. You see, we can say this and the Bible can speak this way because truth invites scrutiny. Error is intolerant. Error is closed-minded. The devil insists on homogenized thinking. That's how he maintains his tyrannical grip on the human mind. And so in our gospel reading this morning, Jesus is patient and winsome and inviting 
and cheerful when it comes to the fears and doubts and skepticism of his friends post-resurrection. He invites them to come and touch and see. So we pick up in John's gospel on the Sunday after the resurrection of Jesus. So this Lord's Day is one week after after Easter. And so in John's gospel, we are one week after Easter. The New Testament tells us that after coming out of the grave, the Lord Jesus spent 40 days going from place to place, presenting himself to various groups of people. And Luke adds in the book of Acts that he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. See, he was showing evidence. This is, this is not a dream. This is not a joke. Jesus really showed himself to be visibly uh, risen from the dead and, and showed himself in his new resurrection body, in his resurrection life. So Jesus spent these 40 days showing himself to various groups of people. And that means the ascension of Jesus wasn't the day after Easter morning. He spent several weeks on earth so that many people could witness his living presence after death. So he could teach them some more. And so they could write it all down and preserve it for the rest of the world to know that this was true. Now, even though Jesus was alive after his crucifixion and death, and even though his grave was empty, those people closest to him still had a difficult time coming to grips with all this. In fact, all of the gospel accounts of the resurrection, we know even though Jesus has conquered death in the grave, at first, the church is scattered and the church is afraid. Wow, doesn't that ring home? A church that is scattered a church that is afraid. In Matthew's gospel, the angel tells the women, do not be afraid. And the responses of the apostles are mixed with fear and doubt. Mark in his gospel uses words like alarm and fear and trembling and amazement, unbelief, hardness of heart. He uses these words to describe the women and the 11 men. Luke talks about them being perplexed. And the men in Luke's gospel accuse the women of telling idle tales. These are the people closest to Jesus. These are the ones who were supposed to be in on the secret. These are the men and women in the inner circle, and they don't get it. If they don't get it, how is the rest of the world going to get it? At the very least, can we put to rest the awful idea that all of these men believed in the resurrection of Jesus because they were ignorant, gullible, ancient men and women who were very easily tricked? Can we put that to rest because they weren't easily tricked? They were all skeptical to some extent. They were all incredulous, which is why they scattered after the arrest of Jesus and they didn't hang around to wait for the other shoe to drop. When we turn to John's account of the resurrection, we find, first of all, Mary Magdalene weeping. She's desperately searching for Jesus. It reminds us again of the Song of Solomon, where the bride is in a panicked search for her beloved. And then when Mary sees Jesus, she doesn't believe it's him. She thinks it's the gardener, which is not too far off base. Jesus is the second Adam. He is the new gardener in a new garden. Except the angels in this new garden aren't wielding a flashing sword to keep people out, but they're inviting them to come see, come check this out, come look into the empty tomb, uh, see this for yourself, inviting scrutiny, inviting uh, them to come look. So Peter and John get to the grave and they see the grave clothes folded up neatly and in order. So this wasn't the work of grave robbers who smashed in and left in a hurry and left a mess behind them. Everything's in order. 
But after they see this, Peter and John don't say anything to each other and they don't see Jesus uh, or, or talk to Jesus until they see him together in person later. So in John's gospel, a cloud of confusion hangs heavy over the narrative. And now as we get to our text, most of the disciples huddle in a room in secret, hiding from the authorities, fearful that the Jews might come find them and round them up. That's when the resurrected Jesus appears right in the middle of them. Did he come in the usual way, except he was unnoticed? Did he just pass through the walls or the door miraculously? It doesn't say. It just says that he came and stood in the midst of them. And he says, peace be with you. And he shows them his hands and his side, showing them the evidence. Then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. All the questions and all the fear and all the dismay and the confusion lifts. The terror dissolves immediately and it turns to rejoicing. We all had a moment like that one night this past week, didn't we? We were all living our worst nightmares as parents vicariously through one of the families in our congregation. I don't know when I've ever felt more hopeless and helpless as a pastor. I was absolutely sick with worry about the worst case scenarios. And then when we got the good news, we went from sick to rejoicing in a snap. We were crying and laughing at the same time. Here, you can imagine that they were all crying and laughing at the same time as the weight instantly lifts off their shoulders. They're not worried now about the Jews or the guards or the Roman soldiers or their reputations or their lives or anything else. This means that everything they've lived for over the past three years, everything they've suffered for has been proven to be true. They have been vindicated. Moreover, they have been saved. They have been delivered because he lives. The kingdom of Jesus didn't meet a dead end at the cross. It continues. And because he has life, we have life. Now you can just imagine the ruckus that was going on in that room when Jesus shows up and he says, peace to you. And it's as if Jesus has to get control of the room again. Jesus speaks to them again and says, peace to you. And maybe he's laughing this time. And he says, as the Father sent me, I also send you. The Father sent Jesus in the power of his Holy Spirit. The Father sent Jesus as the second Adam to come restore the creation and restore humanity and put us back into fellowship with God. And now Jesus says, I send you to go out and do the same thing. So just as Jesus was filled with the Spirit and driven with the Spirit, and just as God breathed into Adam the Spirit of life, so now Jesus breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. That's creation imagery right there. He's empowering them and equipping them with his spirit, not to just give them a new spiritual experience, but to send them out in the same power that drove him along in his ministry and with his authority. He tells them now they have the power to forgive sins and retain sins. These are the keys of the kingdom. This is the power to admit people to the body of Christ and to remove them. What a responsibility, especially a big responsibility for guys who are cowering in fear 20 minutes ago. But he's delegating this authority to them in such a way that they are going to be his hands and eyes and ears. And he gives the church real authority in the world. 
Not imaginary authority, not simply spiritual authority, not pretend authority, not a tin star that you find at the dollar store, but real, eternal authority. And he holds the church accountable for how she uses that authority. If she abuses it, he comes in judgment and removes the candlestick. Not because she doesn't have real authority, but because she does have authority and she misapplies it or fails to use it. So after Jesus invests his church with his own authority, we find out that somebody is missing from the room. Thomas, who is only spoken up a couple of other times in John's gospel. One time Thomas is confused about something that Jesus said. The other time is right before the resurrection of Lazarus, where it's Thomas that says, well, let's go with Jesus to Jerusalem so we can die with him. Now he comes again in this famous scene where we get his nickname, Doubting Thomas. The apostles tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas makes this very rational scientific declaration, unless I see the print of the nails in his hands, unless I see the hole in his side, I will not believe. Have you ever been tempted to pray like that? Lord, if you would just do X or Y or Z for me and just prove yourself, just live up to my evidentiary standard, do what I want you to do, then I would believe or give or obey or do the thing I know I should do anyway. Well, God doesn't necessarily bind himself to play those games, especially after he has already revealed himself sufficiently in creation, in his word and in his son. And he says, come check these out. Come survey what I've already done. But nonetheless, it's another eight days before Jesus appears to them again. And Thomas gets to put him to the test. Here again, they're in a room. Again, the doors are shut. Again, Jesus comes from out of nowhere. And he says, once again, peace to you. And immediately, knowing Thomas's challenge, knowing his heart, Jesus says to Thomas, look at these hands, put your hand in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. You see, Thomas said, I will not believe earlier. And Jesus said, don't be like that. Don't be an unbeliever. Don't be a skeptic. When you see the truth, embrace it. Don't be naive, but don't be cynical. Don't be faithless. Thomas, don't ever fail to trust in me. I don't want you to be an unbeliever. Believe. Well, we don't read that Thomas actually took him up on the offer and literally put his hand in Jesus' side. We do read that, G, that, that Thomas confesses, my Lord and my God. Do the Gospels ever speak of the divine nature of Jesus? Well, yes, here's one place. Thomas calls Jesus God, and Jesus doesn't correct him. If Jesus weren't God, this would be the time to sort that out. If Jesus weren't God and he were accepting worship, then Jesus would be a covenant breaker, not fit to be the Messiah. But here the title fits. Thomas calls Jesus Lord and God, and Jesus receives the worship of Thomas. Now, just as the other men had gotten over their worries a week ago, now Thomas is relieved of all of his frustrations, all of his anger, all of his anxiety, all of his doubt now at the sight of Jesus. Then Jesus so gently says, You've believed because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In fact, it would be because the disciples and the women had seen Jesus that they could tell others who would believe without seeing. And they could write these things down for us, not that we would have 
a deficient word-based faith based on their testimony. We read the words, and so we have a word-based faith. That's not deficient compared to their superior sight-based faith. That's not the way it is at all. But Jesus says, we who read these things will be more blessed. Calvin said, today we behold Christ in the gospel no less than if he stood with us. Therefore, if we decide to see Christ, what will make us happy and blessed? Let us learn to believe where we do not see. You believe that? That we see Jesus just as clearly through the gospel as if he were standing right here before us. Which means that whatever state Jesus finds us in today, however much we identify with the fear and the anxiety and the doubt and the lack of faith in Thomas and the other apostles, Jesus is just as real and he is just as, as present in the gospel. He is just as formidable. He is just as kingly and alive and powerful as he was in the weeks immediately following his resurrection. And if you see him and you encounter him this way in the pages of the gospels, you aren't less blessed than Thomas. Jesus says you're more blessed because the scriptures are our highest authority in a sea of voices, in a cacophony of experts, in competing narratives where everyone is trying to control the message. What God clearly requires of us in his word, that is our authority. Everything else you know and everything else you think and how you process the world around you and what is happening runs through that filter. What has God said? We all submit our brains to the authorities to tell us how to think and what to believe. Jesus comes and attests to his ultimate authority here. I don't know how all of you are feeling. I can be pretty stressed out and have been at times over the last several weeks. I know some of you are having trouble sleeping. I know many of you are worried about what the future holds. I know you are anxious and you are confused and you are scared. And in the middle of all that, we add to our grief by sinning, which doesn't make things better. We make things worse when we sin against God and sin against our loved ones. We give the devil a foothold to make tough circumstances even more gloomy and seemingly desperate. But Jesus comes to you today, child of God, brother, sister. Jesus comes to you today, just as he came to Thomas, gently to say, come here, bring your doubts Bring your questions, bring me your worries, bring me your trials and tribulations, bring me your sins, bring me the sins you don't want to talk about, bring me the things you are ashamed of, the things that you think you're the only one who knows about. Jesus says, I know them just as surely as he knew the conversation that Thomas had, even though Jesus wasn't there, he knew Thomas's doubts. Jesus says, I know what's going on and I need you to confess this all before me. Bring it all over here. Throw it all on me. Come try me. Come test me. Come do this believing, trusting in faith, and I will give you rest. See, that rest came to the apostles, and that rest came to Thomas. He lifted their burdens, and that lightness of heart, that levity of spirit, is just as much yours if you trust. Trust. Don't be unbelieving, he says to Thomas but believing. Let's pray.